Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg. This is another exciting episode of the Remnant Podcast. Uh, this week's episode is brought to you both by ZipRecruiter and by Americans for Prosperity. We'll hear more about those guys in a little bit, but uh, let's get right to it. Uh, Kristen, not Kirsten, our dog walker is named Kirsten, and I'm always getting Kirsten and Kristen confused. Kristen Soltis Anderson joins the elite ranks of return guests on the Remnant podcast. You're a pollster person extraordinaire. You write about politics. You're a, uh, for word geeks out there, a cephologist, uh, one who studies elections, and uh, and a friend of the show. Welcome back. Thanks for having me. Great to have you. All right, so uh, there's a lot going on in the news. Howard Schultz, um, maybe America's most boring guy, which is an interesting thing for a guy who sells caffeine for a living, um, uh, is running on a third-party thing. We've got uh, some interesting polls out here. But the, the thing that all America wants to know about is Wally. So uh, if you follow Chris, Kristen on Twitter, you know that she's got a golden retriever that you – do I understand it right? You got it in Turkey? So I did not go to Turkey, but uh-huh. he is from Turkey. Why are you importing Turks that American dogs won't do? I mean, what 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 is that about? <laughs> so I uh, I when I was growing up, I did not have a dog. Uh-huh. I was always the friend that when I would go to a friend's house, um, they'd have to put their dog in a crate because I'd just be too scared. Uh-huh. Um, but in time and through puppy sitting, a friend's puppy and such, I became a dog person. Really wanted a dog, but don't know anything about dogs. Yeah. Um, don't know anything about taking care of one. My husband grew up with a golden retriever and so knew about the breed, knew what's normal, how to take care of them, et cetera. Um, Among know, America's most harmless dogs. That he's, he's so fantastic. Yeah. But you, I also really I, I wanted to adopt a dog that needed a home. Uh-huh. Um, I, I felt a little weird. I mean, no anyone here who went to a breeder, this is no judgment on you. We all have our own journey to our, our fluffy loved ones. But, I, you know, I, I would like to have been able to rescue a dog, but there just aren't golden retrievers in shelters in the U.S. When people... There's not a golden retriever rescue thing? Well, so this organization uh-huh. f- helps. Th- there is a golden retriever rescue, but they, they've had very few dogs that they could adopt out. Yeah. Because um, some of those are from overbreeding and they're they're kind of messed up. I mean, so we we found this organization, Kyra's Rescue. I had just been in Googling golden retriever rescues over a year ago and had just been watching their website. And I guess in Turkey, having golden retriever puppies is a very trendy thing. Everyone uh-huh. wants a golden retriever puppy. And then they become dogs and people let them go. They're not trendy anymore. And so there are stray golden retrievers. I guess stray dogs is a really big thing in Istanbul anyhow. Um, But there are just stray golden retrievers all over. And and golden retrievers are really bad as stray dogs because, as you mentioned, they're total sweethearts. So this organization finds goldens in shelters there, which all the shelters in Turkey are no-kill shelters, which huh. is a good thing. Yeah. Um, but that means they're very overcrowded as well. And yeah. so finds dogs who would be good fits for American homes. Um, and they come over as the cargo with, you know, business travelers taking yeah. Turkish Airlines from Istanbul to Dulles. And huh. um, so Wally, he's – our vet thinks he's about seven. Yeah. He's got some scars on his face. Um, but he is – for the garbage that I assume has he has experienced in the last couple of years of his life, yeah. he could not be sweeter. Yeah. Um, he's not aggressive at all. The only thing that just cracks me up to no end is because he's gone through periods of his life where we assume food was hard to come by, 
he is a super ninja yeah. about accessing food he's not supposed to access. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so he like at my, I brought him to my office one day, and my staff was giving him an intelligence test because you know Goldens are like sweet, kind of dopey, and they were like, "Oh, Kristen, is your dog like he doesn't fetch even yeah. the retrievers in the name he doesn't fetch." So they tried to administer an intelligence test to him, and then we left him in my office, and you know I was away for. I don't know, not too long. He managed to open the door of my office, get out of my office, and consume four of my coworkers' turkey sandwiches. Nice. Go mm-hmm. Wally. Came back. He's just sitting there in the middle of the office, tail wagon, saran wrap debris all around him. So he's he's crazy smart when yeah. it comes to getting food. Yeah. Well, I used to have this, you know, I've been a dog person all my life, and we used to have a basset hound. And, you know, you know, uh, in one sense, you know, the Bassett would get the 250 points you get from successfully filling out your name on the SAT. But I mean, but beyond that, they don't exude intelligence. But I would always used to defend them by saying, if you define canine intelligence by getting what you want, they're geniuses. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and and Norman, greatest Bassett who ever walked the earth um, or trundled the earth, uh, he would get he was ingenious about climbing up on things to get food and all that kind of stuff. How is Wally with other dogs, though? You could see him having an issue there, right? So we, I was really nervous about that at first. Um, again, I mean, he's got he's got the little scars on his face. You can tell he's been in a scrape or two. I like to think that in his past life, he was like, it's like when John Wick retired before yeah, yeah. he like had to get back in the game. So we were we were nervous. And the first couple of days when we would take him out for walks, I was that dog owner that was like, anytime another dog came by, Wally wanted to go make friends. And I was like, no, 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 no. Um, Problem is dogs can pick up on that. Yeah. Um, and so we've now become more comfortable with it. And he passed his doggy daycare admissions test with oh, flying so colors, which him. I cannot believe is a thing. But I also completely understand that yeah, it's yeah. a thing. I'm, I'm um, and so now he he loves it. He gets to play with other dogs. He's made a couple friends of friends of mine who have dogs. And this is something that I don't understand. You got to help me wrap my mind around this. When we show up at, you know, friend ABC's house and they have a dog and Wally's going to become friends with that dog. The first thing he does, we walk in the house. He's never been in the house before. He beelines to that dog's food bowl uh-huh. and eats everything that's in it. Yeah. Now, question number one, I, knowing Wally and Wally being my only experience, uh-huh. I can't fathom a dog leaving food in a bowl. Yeah. Not just immediately consuming all of it. Yeah. But he just, that that seems to be like his way of greeting new friends. Like he's very docile, but he's also like, oh, you've left food here? Don't mind if I do. Yeah. I mean, it depends on, uh, so a couple things on this. One, it really depends on your confidence about the person's house that you're visiting. Like if Wally came to our house and he made a beeline for Zoe's bowl, Zoe might go John Wick after getting back into the life yep, <laughs> on, yep. on him. I mean, because uh, that is a and not you know not being a true dog expert or anything like that. If you didn't describe Wally's background, I would think that that is a pure alpha dog move of asserting your dominance by taking you know because like it's like in prison, eating off the other guy's tray is like a way to like make <laughs> the other one feel insecure. But it sounds like. Wally's just because he was a street guy for a while. Just, ah, free food, right? You know, and he's probably not playing dominance. He's more games. like the interns at receptions on Capitol Hill. Right, like, right, right. Sweet, free, yeah. Did you hear they have Swedish meatballs? This is awesome. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have to have dinner tonight. Um, yeah. So my guess is it's just he's a 
He's a he's a eating machine, right? He, he is an eating machine. The other thing that's been fun about being a dog owner now and living in the city, living on the hill, is I now suddenly feel like the subject of a David Brooks column where, uh-huh. like, all of these neighbors I didn't know before, yeah. I now know because we're all out on the circuit. Yeah. And when I walk to that park at, you know – Two blocks from the house, you know, Loki is always there being walked by his owner and the dog across the street's name is Savannah. And Wally really likes when we see Savannah on walks. And, yeah. you know, and you like- start talking about other people's dogs at home, you know, and we had a I wrote I wrote about this like 15 years ago when we used to live in the Wyoming, you know, on Columbia Road by Adams Morgan. And um, we used to go to the Colorama Dog Park and with Cosmo, the greatest dog who ever lived. And. Like, this was my Birkin little platoon. This was as much – this is my biggest source of civil society that I had at that age. Just because you're standing there, you're watching your dogs run around in a circle, practicing the – you know, the the, the – I talked about this with Megan McArdle on here, that the essence of dog economics is the concept of a positional good. If I have it, that means you can't have it. So there are lots of sticks, but there's only one that is valued because it's the one that everyone is trying to get from the other dog. And yep. so you stand around, you watch it, and you make jokes about it, you talk about people's work, and they come from different places. And it is it dogs bring you out into the world in ways that I, I think some people who are there, Clay Rutledge and some people have been writing stuff about how dogs are becoming replacements for children, and it's a bad thing. And I think there's some evidence for that. But there are also ways of getting you out of your house and getting you involved with other people and engaged with the world in ways that I don't think a lot of people appreciate who don't have dogs. Yeah, I, 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 there's a whole new side of my neighborhood, mm-hmm. a whole new set of activities I can do with friends who have dogs that yeah. I, we, I couldn't do before. So. so my wife and I, we now – my wife always liked hiking. I will not claim that I've always liked hiking. I, I liked going on crazy urban death march walks, but um, – but I, we now on the same page is that we find hiking utterly pointless without a dog, because you just it's just the thing that gives you the reason for going out there and going to something interesting and doing all that. Um, I gotta say, I like the image of Istanbul populated entirely by stray golden retrievers. It's well, a nice image. The other thing that they told us Very is Disney. that sometimes if they won't, they'll leave them out in more rural areas. That, yeah. and so they'll just be like packs of wild golden retrievers roaming the Turkish countryside, <laughs> like trying to fend for themselves. I mean, this it has it's it's both very heartbreaking and yeah. also like weirdly has the makings of a Pixar movie. Yeah, no, it's oddly adorable. Yeah. I mean, it's 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 not as ludicrous as roam, you know, roving bands of basset hounds, but it's or of toy poodles, but it's it's close, you know. All right, so I obviously could do this all day, but we should probably um move on. I will say though that Make sure you trust the people's dog that when you when you go into someone's house and they make a beeline because that that will yep. be diversely interpretable to the other dogs. I mean, my dog Pippa would not care when just oh that was interesting. I thought that was going to eat that, and Zoe would try to rip Wally's heart out. Yep, um, that would be that would rip my heart out. Yeah, no, it's, <laughs> it's I agree. It's yeah, we're we're still learning what the. I mean, we've only had it. I feel like I've had him for years, but we've only had him for two months, and yeah. it's still we're still in that kind of process of learning. Like what are what are his strange behaviors? Yeah. He he figured out how to open our trash can the other day. We have like a little video from our you know we have a little camera to yeah. watch him during the day of him standing up on his hind legs, putting his hand on the handle, and walking backwards like he's a person. Yeah, and things he does not do in front of us yeah, 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 at yeah. all. So yeah. he continues to be a mystery wrapped in an enigma. One of my oldest friends, uh, Scott McLucas, who's um used to have a Harlequin Great Dane, and he always told the story about how Harlequin Great Danes are the ones that look like Dalmatians, but they're like six feet tall or whatever. And 
he had this Harlequin Great Dane that was convinced that if he couldn't see you, you couldn't see him. <laughs> that it meant like it was like his cloak of invisibility if he was just looking the other way. And they had a Christmas party or a holiday party. And this Harlequin Great Dane, while everyone's having their, you know, waspy cocktails in the next room or in the hallway, comes in on tiptoes and grabs the entire rib roast for the for this 12-person or whatever dinner party and then walks past the entire crowd with his head pointed the other way so he can't make eye contact, <laughs> thinking that'll make him invisible. You know, this 200-pound dog with a dinner in his mouth. I always loved that image. But the dogs do all sorts of weird stuff when you're not looking. That is kind of fascinating. All right. All right I'm not going to get dragged back into this. We should talk about what's actually going on in the world. Is there any chance in hell that you think Howard Schultz can become president of the United States? The only reason that I believe it is possible is because I now exist in a world where I believe anything is possible Fair. in politics. Fair. But so setting that condition aside, I think this is very unlikely. I think it's unlikely because, uh, one, I think in order to be someone who runs outside the traditional party system, you have to be an extremely compelling individual, a force of nature persona. I think if Donald Trump had chosen to run as an independent, he would have been quite formidable in 2016. Mm -hmm. He didn't need to. He won the Republican nomination. But he was a unique brand, a household name, you know, with a strong personality that got people to follow him. Uh, I don't think that Howard Schultz is necessarily that person. Um, I also think that the target market he's going for is one that is not well represented by either political party today, but is also not extensive enough to buoy you to the presidency. Mm. So this is – and I forget if I talked about this last time I was on the show, but a great study that uh, Lee Drutman, a political scientist, did for Democracy Fund's uh, voter study group. They asked a series of questions of voters um, on economic and social cultural issues. And instead of just saying – are you fiscally conservative or fiscally progressive? They asked, you know, 10 or so different questions about your views on role of government in society. Uh, and then same thing with kind of culture, mm -hmm. 10 to 15 or so questions on race, ethnicity, gender, immigration, religion, and then plotted people out on a, you know, on a grid. And most voters clustered either in economic, moderate, social conservative, and those were Trump voters. You had progressive progressives, those were Clinton voters. You had a big chunk of people that were fiscal progressive social conservatives. Mm -hmm. And Trump did pretty well with those folks. But that's a very well-populated quadrant of the mm -hmm. chart. And then the fiscally conservative, socially progressive mm -hmm. quadrant is basically empty. Yeah. Um, I've, I joke that I'm probably Facebook friends with all of the individual dots that are on that yeah. chart. Um, most of them voted for a third-party candidate, uh, or many of them did. Um, so they're not well represented by the current system, but there just also don't appear to be a ton of them out there that in the past have voted. It's not to say that they couldn't all be activated, that they are not the silent urban centrist voter. Right. But um, I, I'm just I'm not convinced. I'm more convinced that if a third party emerged, it would be tackling that much more populist mm -hmm. element rather than the let's bring down the deficit and have socially progressive policies. Right. I and mean, also, isn't there also just the structural issue where it's it's not just that these voters exist, where they're distributed to yield votes in the electoral college is a huge part of it, too. Right. I mean, you need you need to win a plurality of votes 
in a plurality of states in the Electoral College. And the idea that this guy is the guy to do that, I just don't. Yeah, I think you would have to, and especially if you are trying to defeat, if you're trying to defeat a Republican incumbent, I mean, you would need to be able to pick states like Texas off the board, Mm -hmm. which it's possible that in the suburbs of places like Dallas and Houston, places where Republicans did poorly and lost House seats in the last midterm, that that's the type of place where maybe you could find some of these like Panera Republican types. Mm -hmm. Um, I just don't think it's enough to win you Texas. Um, And so or on the flip side for, you know, how many Democrats are going to vote for an independent or how many voters in Manhattan are going to vote for an independent if they think that there's any chance that he might be a spoiler and allow Donald Trump to be reelected, which is the current narrative sort of coming out of the Democratic side. So are you skeptical about that he would do more damage to the Democrats than the Republicans? I don't think that there's a ton of evidence of that yet. I think if I had to guess, it would be more damaging to the Democrats to the extent that there is an anti-Trump vote that is about 40 to 45 percent of America that no matter what Donald Trump does, they do not like him. They will not like him, period. If you're splitting that, that's that's not... It certainly helps Donald Trump get reelected. But I also think there were a lot of people that gave Donald Trump a shot in 2016 because he seemed different. He didn't seem like politics as usual. He seemed kind of independent and came from the business world, et cetera, et cetera. And so to the extent that any of those folks are dissatisfied with the current administration, and I would say maybe 10 to 15 percent of those folks have bled away, at least within the Republican base, you know, could they be gettable? Sure. So that that's only, that's why I'm less convinced that it is overwhelmingly oh this would just help get Trump get reelected, but I lean toward thinking that's the more likely yeah. outcome because I mean, there are, if you look at the midterms, right, there are a bunch of people who were Trump voters or who were traditional suburban Republicans who voted Democrat. They might not like the idea of voting for Kamala Harris, but still don't want to vote for Trump. That could be where he could pick up. In the Chicago suburbs, a bunch of people, or in the Cleveland suburbs, a bunch of people. But again, not enough to win. There's, I know there's a, uh, a Democratic pollster, Cornell Belcher, who's done a lot of analysis in some of those blue wall states, um, trying to look at younger voters who cast protest votes. So younger voters who voted for Jill Stein, younger voters who voted for Evan McMullen. And his analysis sort of suggests that had Hillary Clinton been able to persuade those voters to come to her instead, that it would have been, you know, young vo- young voters casting protest votes is part of what made Donald Trump mm-hmm. president. So sure. there is this is a really deeply ingrained fear on the Democratic side that a spoiler could come in and cause this all to happen again. Right. Well, they 2000, 2016, they have plausible reason to think they've been robbed a couple times, you know, given motivated reasoning and everything else. Although I do think they got Bill Clinton in 92. At the end of the day, Ross Perot helped Clinton beat Bush. There were other things going on there. But all right, so I know you've got corporate clients and you're in this world and it's a little more complicated for you to answer these kinds of questions than it might be for me. But I am convinced, and I was just talking about this on the Glop podcast uh, the other day, I'm convinced that there is a business model out there for political consultants. John Weaver comes to mind, but you know, whatever. I'm not, I, you don't have to name any names. Um, someone told me yesterday that, or the other day that um, Steve Schmidt is advising Howard Schultz on this. Um, but there's a business model, not to cast aspersions on any individuals, where there are really rich people, some of them with political history, like a Huntsman or something, or even a Kasich, uh, but who 
love the idea of having important men with charts and graphs come to their study where everyone has to be, the family has to be kept quiet because important people are coming to explain how the country needs daddy to run for president. And they live in these sort of entourage bubbles where they hire consultants to tell them what they want to hear. The consultants are happy to tell them what they want to hear because they're getting paid a lot of money to tell them what they want to hear. But I mean, what 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 is going? What do you, what would you speculate is going through Schultz's head in all of this? Uh, I speculate that he's looking at the 2016 election and the percentage of voters who disliked the candidate that they voted for, and is looking at the Democratic primary and expecting that it is going to be one that will yield a candidate far to the left of your median American. And that we're, if we're staring down the barrel of another election where people are going to cast ballots for someone they don't like, can I emerge unscathed by this ugly system that will produce these two candidates that America doesn't like and instead be someone who has a compelling personal narrative? I mean, I, I think that once you have been a prominent CEO, you've been at the top of one industry, it's easy to see yourself being at the top of another industry – Donald Trump proved you can make that transition somewhat Mm -hmm. seamlessly. Uh, So I I think that's what's going through someone's mind when they are thinking about, do I want to be the independent candidate for president who tries to disrupt the system? Yeah, I get that. Did you watch the 60 Minutes interview? I did not. Okay, so... I've seen him speak before, though. Okay, well, if you're having trouble sleeping tonight, go watch the DVR of it. I get your point entirely. But the idea that that guy – I mean like Lord knows people know that I'm critical of Donald Trump. But I get why some people found him compelling. Certainly I understand why people found him entertaining. He was definitely a household name. Uh, He was legitimately more celebrity than Tycoon anyway. So I get all that. This guy – there's a scene in the 60 Minutes interview where the interviewer is asking him about this really kind of heart-wrenching story. Because he's got a good – Schultz has got a good story. About how his father beat him to a pulp in the shower. And he managed to make that a boring story. And it's really kind of – like there's nothing – there's no sizzle to him as a personality. Ross Perot had a personality. Like whether you liked him or not, he was was sort of like Yosemite Sam, you know – Charts and graphs. and Yeah, charts and graphs. Sort of the Yosemite Sam after the electroshock therapy made him lose all his hair. And um, there's nothing to that. There's no like – and maybe that's – the vanilla is a selling point, right? It's like no drama. Yeah. So uh, my, my business partner, Patrick, has a red hat in his office that says make politics boring again, um, which he sort of got, I think, you know, to be – it to be a, as a joke, but I I do think there is a segment of voters out there who would at least tell me in a focus group that they would like politics to just go back to being something that happens in the background of their lives yeah. rather than something where when they walk into the grocery store and they're trying to buy a razor, yeah, yeah. they feel politics weighing on them between what razor brand right. they're going to buy. No, I agree with that. He's in um, everyone's headspace. Yeah. And so – can we – is there something appealing about someone who comes in and says, make me president and you will not have to worry about this stuff for four years? You yep. can go back to going on your social media platforms and looking at dog and baby pictures instead of 
political screeds. And I, I don't know that that's a promise that can actually be fulfilled. I don't know that you can put this genie back in the bottle. I don't know that we can go back to a time when politics is not present in every choice we make. But the promise of that could be appealing to a sort of apolitical voter who – and this is, was a piece of Trump's coalition, the Emily Eakins five types of Trump voter analysis. She you know, figures there's your social conservatives, there's your Tea Party conservatives, there's your business conservatives. And then there are kind of your, your populist and apolitical types and that they're not necessarily ideologically – tied to anything. They're just of the mind, the system is broken. I want someone who can fix it. I want someone from the outside. To the extent that those folks also don't like the way that politics feels like it's become increasingly toxic in the Trump era, do they get drawn to someone like a a Howard Schultz? Yeah. Again, I, I don't think that he is likely to be the next president. But if I'm trying to construct the case for how we get there or how he's competitive, that hunger for I just want someone boring. I want to not have to care about this all the time. Could be compelling to some slice of the electorate. Sure. Yeah. No, look, I mean, I would be much more open to the guy. I mean, I think he's basically just a liberal Democrat who understands he can't run as a liberal Democrat. Um, but I, I'd i be totally open to voting for somebody f- from the middle who is running this sort of centrist kind of thing if I thought they could win. Uh but it just – it feels so much like a vanity project to me. That's very hard for me to – Well, and bear in mind, I think it is unlikely that he has consultants who are telling him um, – who are telling him that this is impossible, uh, that are telling him – I mean, I, I'm sure they are telling him the hurdles ahead, but mm-hmm. are in the business of saying, and here's how we can overcome them and right. here's how we can help you. Um, and if you're coming from the business world where when you face a problem – you can bring in, OK, well, I've, how am I going to deal with this acquisition? Let me bring in lawyers. Let me bring in consultants. Right. I can fix this. If you treat politics like a business problem that can be fixed by I'm going to bring in people from the outside who know what they're doing and we'll come up with a plan and we'll execute that plan and it'll work, uh, the American voter is a little less less predictable uh, than I think some people imagine. I mean, yeah. we have Donald Trump as president. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's why we can't have nice things. I understand. Um All right, so I want to switch gears in a second, but first we should talk about our first advertiser this week. So this podcast is brought to you by Americans for Prosperity, and they want you to know that President Trump's tax reform and red tape reductions helped jumpstart our economy by getting Washington out of the way. Now tariffs are putting Washington back in charge. Protectionist trade policies give politicians and bureaucrats the power to pick winners and losers and rig the system against us to benefit the politically connected. But free trade ensures that everyone is treated equally on a level playing field. It allows the best products and services to compete without unnecessary rules, regulations, and bureaucratic interference. Our economy does best when Americans, not government bureaucrats or politicians, decide how we buy and sell with each other and with the rest of the world. Tell Washington, support free trade. Learn how you can make a difference at www.tradebuildsamerica.com. All right, so was it Pew came out recently with this? Was it Pew or Gallup? I it was, was Pew because Gallup is a little more out of the business of political polling these days. Is that right? Yeah, there's, it's, this is a big shift. Gallup has been doing kind of daily tracking on presidential job approval going back decades, and yeah. they're really scaling their political stuff back. So right now— Why? Do you know why? Uh, 
I think part of it is that Gallup has a business model where they do a lot of corporate consulting. Uh And after the 2012 election, I mean, they said on Election Day, they said Romney 49, Obama 48. And that was kind of a big, whoa, let's figure out what we're doing. I remember that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, And if you've got corporate clients, the risk of being wrong Mm -hmm. is – is big. And there's no other item in the world of public opinion research where you are held so accountable as things like a ballot test measure. Right. If I'm doing a project for a corporate client and I find out that 60 percent of Americans think red M&Ms is the best and I go and advise my client for whatever they need to know that's 60 percent of M&M, if the real answer is that actually 55 percent of Americans right. think red M&Ms are their favorite, I'm probably not getting fired from that project. It, you know, Ideally, you want to be getting it right as a pollster. But if you say you're going to win with 60 percent of the vote and instead you get 55 percent and the margin is much closer and then there's consequences for that. So I think that's just Gallup moving more to a consulting model and wanting to get out of the business of potentially being publicly wrong and potentially being enmeshed in the political ecosystem that we have now. But Pew continues to produce – really excellent data about political attitudes. And a week or two ago, uh, they released their study about Generation Z. Uh And this was like Christmas morning for me. Because for so long, people have been asking me, well, gosh, we may have lost the millennials on the right. But Gen Z, this is a fresh start. Maybe we can win them over. And I have not been able to rebut that with hard data because hard data didn't exist until now. (laughs) Jonah, do I have great news for you? (laughs) So the good news is you have data that the bad news is right. Yes. (laughs) Okay. That's that's correct. (laughs) All right. So what does it say? Um, It says that Gen Z on almost every issue has political views that are right in line with where the millennial generation is, Uh Um, whether it's approval of Trump around 30 percent for both millennials and Gen Z, for views about foreign policy, for views about race in America, Um, views about the role of government in society is the number that terrifies me the most because this is one that Pew has been tracking over decades. Um, The way they frame it is they say, which do you think you agree with more, that government should do more to solve problems or government is doing too much that would be best left to businesses and individuals? Um, And we can argue about is that the best way to track this and what have you. But back in 2010, they put out a report that about half of millennials said government should be doing more. And for older generations, it was only like a third to 40 percent. Nowadays, majorities of all generations, I think, say government should be doing more to solve problems. Mm. And for millennials and Gen Z, it's like 70 percent. Mm. So that's the good news. How does it, how does it break out um, along uh, racial ethnic lines. So they have not this was just broken out along generational lines. Uh-huh. In fact, the there were only a couple of items where they broke them out a second way. One was they found that there's an interesting age and gender divide about are you a, do you think it's a good thing that more women are running for political office that for men there's very little difference based on how old you are, how likely you are to say yes to that question. For women there's a big difference. Yeah. Young women very excited, older women Less excited than older men um, about these changes. And the other big change that they divided or that they saw um, by party and age was over the issue of race. Mm -hmm. And that was the way Pew was asked the question is something to the effect of it is harder for black Americans to get ahead 
than what for white Americans. Trying to understand, do you think that systemic racism is a thing? Um, for Democrats of all ages, there's, you know, 80 percent agreement mm-hmm. with the statement. For older Republicans, 20 percent say yes. For Gen Z Republicans, 43 percent say yes. So yeah. younger Republicans have different views on the existence of and role of systemic racism in society. Um, but for the most part, you know, there were very few differences um, they said they found between the kind of Gen Z and millennials with the exception of that race question uh-huh. and gender and specifically gender neutral pronouns. Mm-hmm. Um, the, that is the one issue where Gen Z is further out than where millennials are. Yeah. Um, and they, they asked a couple different questions about that issue in the survey that all sort of showed a consistent pattern. Yeah. I mean, they are beating the hell out of kids in – my daughter's 15, you know, goes to a private school. It's She can talk about this pronoun stuff better than I can. You know, I mean, it's, it's amazing how quick, how little resistance in elite circles that had. Um, for good or ill, I mean, this is just a purely objective, you know, analytical point. I think there's a lot of ill to it, but um, that's a that's a topic for another podcast. Well, and, <laughs> and there's it, it is what was interesting to me too is they even find that seven percent of people in the silent generation. Yeah. Older than the baby boomers say they know someone who uses gender neutral pronouns. And I sort of floated that. I, I mentioned that number to my my podcast co-host Margie and was like, does that number seem like unusually high to you? I, yeah. I feel like that's for that generation that seems high. And she says it's probably their grandkids. It's probably yeah. their grandkids or their great grandkids. Yeah. Um, and so it's the sort of thing where if you looked at the polling data on same sex marriage, where millennials were tended to be where boomers would end up 10 years later. And so it'll be interesting to see with these issues of sort of gender neutral pronouns, um, et cetera, people who don't identify um, gender binary, does, does all of that evolve for older generations as well? Or is this just a thing that stays unique to young people mm-hmm. and continues as a big age gap issue moving forward? Yeah, I'm skeptical. There, there's something about this that is more of a it feels sort of a social equivalent of the tulip bulb craze. I'm not saying that there aren't people who are legitimately transgender or don't have these issues and all the rest, but this sort of sudden onset of this sort of gender dysphoria stuff, I think there's a large social component to that, that institutions haven't figured out how to like weed the real cases from the non-real cases and and there will be a correction over time. But it's, you know, I mean, I have a friend who has kids at a very elite school in L.A. and they go around to nine and ten year olds and they ask, they ask the nine year old, ten year old boy, do you like girls? Now, I can tell you that the correct answer from a nine or ten year old boy is either you know or I don't know. And um, if you say I don't know, then they say, oh, so you're questioning and they put you someplace else on the gender spectrum. I just think that's grotesque that you that these schools are deciding to impose this stuff at that early an age because it's fashionable. And I think it'll be fixed. But anyway, we don't need to get into all that. And nothing I say should be assumed to be something you agree or disagree with just to save you. I'm just here giving you yeah, the data. I'm just here giving you the like generations are viewing this in very different ways. So let's talk about other things that generations are viewing differently. I, I recently wrote a column about how one of the possible scenarios you could have for – a GOP primary against Trump is sort of replay the Eugene McCarthy scenario where Eugene McCarthy came in with huge support among college kids who were sort of the, 
you know, they, they got clean for Gene, right? And they shaved their hippie beards and cut their hippie hair and, and dealt a vicious blow to LBJ in the New Hampshire primary. People seem to forget that LBJ actually won the New Hampshire primary just sufficiently narrowly that he dropped, pushed him out of the race. But support for primarying Trump is much, much higher among young self-described conservatives and Republicans than it is among older ones. How much how much should I be reading into those numbers about how among young conservatives, young conservatives being much more hostile or much less MAGA than older conservatives? Is that a lasting thing? Is that is that an artifice of the data because a lot of young people have just left the Republican Party? What? How should I read that? Well, the first thing to bear in mind is that, and this is something that I think is deeply unfortunate, but young voters are not a big piece of the Republican primary process. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, Ted Cruz did quite well with young conservatives, but it wasn't enough to really power all twelve them. of them. Oh, yeah, yeah. right. <laughs> uh, and so it's it's hard to get. It's hard. It's much harder to have a youth movement on the right than it is on the left in modern American politics um, to transform the way a party looks. You also have, I think, on college campuses today, and this is something where I'm still trying to collect more more data points, but um, a lot of young people who they're not necessarily crazy about the president. I mean, his job approval is lower among young conservatives than it is among older conservatives. But they are fighting battles on campus that in some ways are similar to the battles that the president is fighting about Mm -hmm. political correctness and what have you. And so even if they don't love him or even if they might have preferred someone else, I don't know that there's a huge appetite to throw him out. Mm -hmm. So much as if you are a younger conservative, wait him out. Mm -hmm. You're going to be around for a long time. The Republican Party is going to go through a couple different iterations in your lifetime, most likely. This is the one that happens to be in fashion at the moment when you're young. But, you know, when we get to 2024 and the dawn of the Nikki Haley era or whatever, you know, do we just need to wait, wait it out till then? Mm-hmm. And if you're young, you have the luxury of, of saying, well, well, we'll wait and see. Um, so I think that's point one. I do also think, and this is something that it's that the moral foundations theory look at things, you know, loyalty and being sort of, uh, I need to be loyal to my in-group is something that... Um, Jonathan Haidt found was more prevalent among conservatives than among progressives. But I also tend to find it's more stronger among older versus younger. Mm-hmm. Um, and that could be because older tends to be more conservative in, in this day and age. But if older voters view, you know, if you're going to primary Trump, that's an act of disloyalty. Mm-hmm. He's in your party and you should be loyal to him versus someone who's younger and might have a little more like, well, it's only fair for everyone to be able to jump in and run. You know, they, they might be animated by a different sort of core moral principle that does not tell them it is morally wrong for you to primary Trump in the way that so many older Republicans seem to think. I mean, if you take a look at Mitt Romney's job approval numbers mm-hmm. among Republicans, they're terrible right now. And it's in part because he he is saying what he believes to be true. He's putting his opinion out there. But if it is viewed as disloyalty, that is viewed as like a character flaw that you have you have morally transgressed and therefore should be cast out of our circle. And I think that's a a big way that older conservatives think about this that just may not be as prevalent among younger ones. So I've been doing some real hard thinking about this. And I guess one one question I would really like to know is I don't know if you have the answer to it is that if you dig down on the data. This question of disloyalty, I think, is a real one, right? How much of it is perceived as disloyalty to the man 
and how much of it is disloyalty to the party, which are slightly different things, or to the cause, let's say, right, um, to conservatism. Because as you saw, here's what I'm getting at. Like with the when Trump caved on the government shutdown, and I'm sorry, listeners, he caved. Uh, the there were two groups, right, who had these instant reactions. There were the sort of, for want of a better label, the sort of Trumpists who were like, genius. Trump has them exactly where he wants them. This is the long play, right? My colleague Conrad Black has a piece saying how he outsmarted the Democrats, which I think, with all due respect, is ridiculous. You had all sorts of the sort of MAGA Trumpist people trying to spin this and turd polish this into something glorious, right? And then you had the sort of Ann Coulter crowd, which I will call, for want, again, for want of a better label, call them the America Firsters, who are committed to a cause or an agenda more than they're committed to the man. And um, so if primarying Trump pings the moral foundations theory center of the brain about disloyalty, do you have any sense, even a guess, how many are pissed off by that because they feel it as an affront to their man? And how many are pissed off because they feel like it's an affront to their cause? I think for an awful lot of folks on the right, there's not a great deal of separation between the two these days. That for all of Trump's flaws, if he is the guy who is the only one who was capable of winning and therefore the only one capable of advancing their cause, anything that might harm him could potentially mean he doesn't get reelected and therefore would have been a selfish act that led to the Kamala Harris presidency. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So I just want to push back. I, 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 I think you're right that these things are bundled in people's heads until new events make all of a sudden people go on different weird paths, right? So – I mean, it was Ann Coulter who wrote a book called In Trump We Trust. You know, she was, for all intents and purposes, a Trumpist and an America Firster because those labels perfectly overlap. It's like Irving Kristol used to say, on the right, there are two kinds of conservatives. There are those who are anti-state and those who are anti-left. And for big chunks of the post-World War II period, it was very difficult to figure out who was who because the arguments complemented each other and the orientations complemented each other. It was... um uh, you know, in fights over public schools, there were some people said this is a waste of taxpayer dollars, and there were other people said, look at these these horrible things that they're teaching. And the people who are anti-state said, yeah, I don't want them using my tax dollars to teach them that, but they really don't want their tax dollars to be used as anything. It was only when issues like school choice emerge that all of a sudden you could see the variations there. The cave on the shutdown revealed, uh, you know, briefly at least this split between these two different flavors of Trumpist or Trump supporter. And my guess is that rift will be healed because neither has any place to go and there's no one, you know, Steve Bannon is not going to primary Donald Trump. But the part of the reason why I'm getting at this is that it seems to me that one of the best, there are a lot of second tier people, no offense to Larry Hogan, who I think is a really honorable, decent guy, and no offense to, well, Kasich is sort of a separate issue, but there are not a lot of first-tier people who are going to primary Donald Trump, at least not in first. There is the potential of the Kennedy scenario where, you know, McCarthy challenges LBJ and because of that challenge draws in RFK, right, and other people to come in. You could see that scenario. But it seems to me the only obviously potential argument that someone like Nikki Haley, and full disclosure, my wife works for Nikki Haley, and I am privy to no conversations on that side of it that would give me any hint that she was thinking about doing this, um, I'm this pure pundit mode. But the only way Nikki said she's not going to run against Trump. 
the only way someone sort of first tier who's popular in the party could conceivably make the argument that they needed to primary Trump would be I'm doing it to save the party, right? If Trump's approval rating goes down to 2018, 15%, which I don't think is implausible. Um, and I do think it's implausible. Okay. I don't think it's likely, but, you know, uh, uh, let's see what he does on immigration, right? But um, And it looks just obvious that he's going to lose. And we start worrying about losing the Senate and giving Kamala Harris or somebody unified control of Congress the way Trump had for his first two years. Somebody could... It would take the right person. It would take someone who had – it requires someone who had supported Trump, maybe even served in his administration, who is still popular with anti-Trump people to say, hey, look, he did, we did some amazing things. This is great, but uh, we're doomed unless we save the – sort of break glass in case of emergency candidacy. Um, and so one of the reasons I ask this is trying to figure out how many people – are, care about the cause versus care about the man, because that would be determinative, determinative of whether or not this is a crazy idea or not, right? I think the other thing that makes it a crazy idea is the what are the ingredients that would be necessary to engineer a victory like this? And I think it would require a level of airtime and such that you would not get given the moves that the party has officially taken mm-hmm. in recent days and weeks. To say we're not – I mean do you – there's a – this is something I am almost certain of. There is a zero percent chance Donald Trump stands on a primary debate stage sure. against a Larry Hogan or someone like that. I mean the sorts of things that you might need to have that moment where you gain traction. Um, being in control of the party means he can snuff – he can take away that oxygen and, and make that a nearly impossible thing for almost anyone save someone with a huge platform of their own. And I don't think anyone in the party has a platform even remotely close to Donald Trump's at this point. No, I agree with that. Sure. Um, so I, I just think logistically there's a 0% chance Donald Trump even acknowledges that a primary is happening or is legitimate. And given that, it's hard for me to imagine more than the, a 20% slice of the party ever rallying behind someone who's not Trump. Yeah, well, okay, but first of all, 20% is not nothing. And second of all, you have a lot more confidence in... Donald Trump's capacity for impulse control than I do. And I think it's, No, it's that I've seen a lack of impulse so control. Easily. A, a, a lack of impulse control has not hurt him politically down to the 15 to 18 percent level thus far. Oh, sure, sure. No, but my point is, is that you're saying that he would ignore a primary opponent. I ignore, <laughs> not necessarily, uh, would not appear on the same stage with, yeah. would not, would probably go after, which as has been the case with every book that comes out that he attacks, suddenly they sell tons of copies. Right. But I, I don't think being attacked by Trump is the path to winning the Republican nomination. No, I think that's probably right. I think that's probably right. You know, look, I, I think you're absolutely right that part of the problem is trying to figure out if there is a candidate to recruit or if there is a candidate that can be recruited. And since we're on the topic of recruiting... <laughs> Wow. Amazing transition. That brings me to ZipRecruiter. You know, uh, there's only one thing that's more exhausting and overwhelming than trying to find someone to primary Donald Trump or to uh, run as an independent. um, And that's hiring for your own business. Hiring can be pretty time consuming. You post a job to several online boards only to get tons of the wrong resumes. 
Then you have to sort through all of those resumes just to find a few people with the right skills and experience. Those job sites that overwhelm you with wrong resumes, they're not smart. That's why you should do the smart thing and go to ZipRecruiter.com slash dingo. Unlike other job sites, ZipRecruiter finds qualified candidates for you. It's powerful matching technology scans thousands of resumes to identify people with the right skills, education, and experience, and actively invites them to apply to your job. So you get qualified candidates fast. It's no wonder that ZipRecruiter is rated number one by employers in the U.S. This rating comes from hiring sites on Trustpilot with over 1,000 reviews. And right now, my listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash dingo. If you love the show, or frankly, even if you like it, or even if you hate it, but you just need to hire somebody good, show your support to it and ZipRecruiter by going to ZipRecruiter.com slash dingo. That's D-I-N-G-O. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash dingo. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. All right, so let's 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 turn it to a little bit more rank punditry, uh, just for a second. Where do you see the Democratic field? What what is the high watermark? How many candidates do you think they're going to have before it starts to go down? Uh, there will be a million candidates. Yeah. I, I mean that's and that's not an exaggeration. Do you that think they passed twenty? No, you know, twenty might actually be. I, I mean, I think it's going to look a lot like the Republican field yeah. last time. Yeah. Um, because the incentives are there, why not? You never know. Bernie Sanders was polling at negative six percent in the Democratic field four years ago this time, and now he's Bernie Sanders. I mean, so there, there's no reason not to. Uh-huh. Um, and if you're someone like uh, South Bend Mayor Pete Buttigieg, yeah. who I'm glad I, you pronounced that because I'm not going. I, to. I have been who I have actually been a sort of a fan of. For I, I wrote a piece about him for a Swedish magazine like a couple of years ago. Oh, I saw that. Um, very re- <laughs> yeah, like do you, regularly, regularly reading uh, Swedish publications. Uh, you know, like he's just someone that I'd had my eye on for a uh. while who I think is impressive. I, I don't necessarily know that I think he's going to win the Democratic uh. primary, um, but it's I I am going to be fascinated to see to what extent this primary is actually about these policy divides. Who wants Medicare for all versus who doesn't? What are their approaches to criminal justice? And how much this is about personality and electability. Mm-hmm. Because the number one thing that Democrats want is not Medicare for all. It's not – It's they want Donald Trump to not be president anymore. Right. And whatever will get them that. And so how, to what extent are Democratic primary voters trying to be strategic? Oh, maybe I like – you know, Kamala Harris, but I feel like Amy Klobuchar is more electable or vice versa. How much is electability Mm -hmm. consciously or unconsciously driving this primary? Because I actually think in some ways you could make the case that Donald Trump won because Republicans were like tired of losing presidential elections Mm -hmm. and they thought, well, neither the Ted Cruz camp nor the Marco Rubio camp seems to have a theory of the case for how you win Donald Trump, his theory is that you just blow it up and you do things totally differently. And I like that. Um, I believe consciously or unconsciously a desire for an electable candidate, weirdly, was a part of how Donald Trump wound up winning the Republican primary. I think that's right. Um, 
And so that that for me is is what I you know there's so much talk now. Kamala Harris did a town hall. She said she wanted Medicare for all. She said she wanted we'd eliminate private health care plans. I mean, yes, that stuff's going to wind up in ads if she's especially if she's if she's the Democratic nominee, it'll be in every Republican ad, but it'll probably be in half of her opponents' ads. Look, she wants to take away your mm-hmm. your health insurance. Um, but is it actually about that, or is it about who do they think has what it takes to stand on the debate stage against Donald Trump? And hold their own and beat him. Mm-hmm. And to that end, do they want someone who's fiery and feisty and he or she fights? Or do they want someone who is... Goes high when he goes low. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that's why, I mean, I think I have always sort of thought Amy Klobuchar is interesting, um, you know, coming from this part of the country that Democrats need to figure out how to win back. She's someone who, in the political work I've done in Minnesota, swing voters in Minnesota who did not love Al Franken still nonetheless thought, oh, she's fighting for me. Um, But if if Democrats want someone who's going to stand up there and go insult for insult with Donald Trump, she may not be your person. So this for me, I think we're going to spend a lot of time talking about Oh, they've just rolled out this plan for, you know, Kamala Harris has this tax plan and so and so has this Green New Deal. And but are Democratic voters going to be focused on that or do they just want to know temperamentally mm-hmm. this person can stand on the stage and get the job done? Yeah, it's funny because that's what got John Kerry the nomination in 2004. It was I remember writing about this and looking at the poll and it was so many Democrats said, you know, I think he's the most electable. I think his military record will help him attract other voters. And. It was so obvious in all these, you know, exit interviews and 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 uh, you know, profile pieces that what they were really saying is, I don't like him, but I think other people will like him, and I think that gets you into trouble. Like if you don't actually like the candidate, maybe you're detecting something that other people will detect too, and it could be a problem. But you, you br- bring up Klobuchar, who I like, reminded me of this. Uh, what I, I'll just be honest, this amazing – what I think is an amazingly, exhaustingly stupid trope, which is if you f- say a female candidate isn't likable, it's automatically now considered sexist. And I think Klobuchar is likable. She seems like a nice lady and she seems like a serious person and I think she handled one of the only people who handle themselves well in the Kavanaugh hearings. I actually personally think Elizabeth Warren is more likable than a lot of people on the right do. There's something I like nerds and I like standing in your kitchen drinking a beer and hanging out with your golden retriever is the most relatable thing a candidate <laughs> could possibly do exactly. to reach a target audience of one. That's right. That's right. <laughs> and uh but as just a general prop like I, I but meanwhile I think Gillibrand is all, she drives me crazy and I can't stand her. And so I, I but how much of that are we destined for going into 2020? And what do you make of the merits of this? Is is that is, does being female automatically give you a force field from being criticized on the merits or about your personality? I don't think being female should give you a force field from yeah. being criticized on the merits. I think that there are certain things that male candidates can do. Like let's take, for instance, the recent Beto O'Rourke – Beto's diary, mm-hmm. what have you, yeah, which, yeah. you know, I think is the sort of thing that if a female candidate was doing, 
people would be like, well, she's, I mean. Yeah, yeah. Not no, that, that's fair. I, I think that she would be perceived as cuckoo in a way that's different than like Beto. It's like, oh, he's an endearing guy, like finding himself on the road. Um, I, I think that, so I, I do think there are double standards. Mm-hmm. I, I do not think that means that you should not call a spade a spade. Right. And I think that women as candidates should not be treated with kid gloves. Um, but I also don't – and I think this is maybe more of a democratic side thing than a general thing. I don't I don't view women as tending to be ca- treated with kid gloves in politics. Yeah. Um, I think the likability thing – I mean I do think it gets asked a little more about women than men because I think being unlikable as a man – is is not considered a vice in the same way that necessarily being, necessarily yeah, as, yeah, yeah. and so that's where I think the it's I I don't view it as inherently sexist to talk about a candidate's likability but I think once we have determined someone is unlikable it penalizes women much more so than men yeah well, that's, I think that's probably fair and like my my wife makes this point often about the resonance of the word ambitious that it's there is a double standard about how you know if you apply it to women. Wow, she's being, you know, she's so ambitious. It sounds like she's the female candidate is reaching above their real rank or their real status in some way, in a almost uh, presumptuous way that doesn't apply to men. I think that's fair too. But it just, you know, it goes back to the Hillary Clinton thing. You know, in 2016, a lot of people, a lot of Trump voters, I mean, including you know people like me who weren't Trump voters. There's there's this inherent bullying involved where other people get to decide everything that you think based upon the fact that you're just – the person you're criticizing is of a different gender or a different race. I mean Brian Stelter – that's his name, Stelter? He did that panel about Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and you know all these journalists are defending Cortez for, you know, crafting her own narrative – when she lies in the press or gets facts wrong, right? But meanwhile, Trump is, you know, this demon for getting stuff wrong. And the explanation for why conservatives don't like her, and personally, I actually kind of do find her likable, um, uh, is that she, one woman says, she ticks every box that white conservatives don't like, you know, and just basically reduces all hostility to this person who's been turned into a dashboard saint of progressivism almost overnight to the fact that she's a minority woman. And I think there's a bubble among the media and among leading Democrats that they think that's a really persuasive argument to everybody, when in reality it pisses a lot of people off to be told that because you are criticizing someone's plan to socialize medicine, it's really just because you're racist. And I don't think they realize that it creates a backlash to the extent that it does. Well, but I I will also say that I see far more coverage of her from conservative media than I do from mainstream media. That in some ways, it's kind of like the pajama boy that mm-hmm. from the Obama administration era, you know, the the ad that they put out, oh, talk to your parents about health insurance. And it was this guy in his hipster glasses and his curly hair and his onesie pajamas holding a cup of cocoa that, you know, his mom made for him. He didn't right. make it himself. And, you know, oh, he's this you know stupid he millennial. You know, neutral pro- pronouns. Sh- you know, <laughs> fist, shaking their fist at him. like And, and you know, he be- it, it blew up as a thing because for conservatives, he represented – 
look at this path we could be going down. Sure. And so, I mean, she represents she's someone who is young and someone who holds very far left views. And it's kind of like the look, this is the path we could be going down as a country. And I think that that for conservatives, they may be saying, well, this is what makes me anxious is her views on issues and the fact that she is allowed to go uncritically on late night talk shows and say, yeah, I'm going to social, you know, this is my mm-hmm. Green New Deal in a way that a, you know, Elise Stefanik would never, right. never have been invited to do uncritically and with fawning coverage. Um, but at the same time, I do think like I wish that conservatives would just tone it down a notch because they have now made the avatar of what they are fighting against someone who is, I think, actually a very likable person. Like, I don't think this is going to go the way you think it is. Yeah. If you, I would much rather have the avatar of socialism in America be someone who is not charming me with yeah. Instagram videos where she's making mac and cheese in her Instant Pot, right? Yeah. That's So I, I think... Bernie that, Sanders is a better symbol of socialism. Old, cranky guy with a Brooklyn accent. With, where there's footage of him shirtless singing folk songs in the USSR. Did That's you, exactly yeah. right. right. That, that is my, So I think when conservatives are so focused on, like, let's tear this gal down... It's they're giving her more oxygen and she is someone who I think is very likable. And I think if she is the face of the new socialist future, that is not what conservatives. Yeah. Look, not the direction they should be wanting to go. I, 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 I agree with you, but I also just think both things can be true. I mean, you, you see these charts of how much cover she's getting on Fox. I think that's a mistake. I agree with you on that. But I've written a couple of columns now about this, about how she is – you know, in this era of negative partisanship, she has mastered – she's picked the lock, right? And she understands that you get more popular on your own side the more the other side attacks you. And um, at the same time, you're right. Conservatives are paying too much attention to her and they're – it's not so much that they're paying too much attention to her. They're paying attention to her in sometimes really stupid ways. But at the same time, she is – I mean she was on the cover of The New Yorker and and she gets these glowing profiles and these photo spreads and she's very attractive. So you can understand why some of that is going on. But you see you know, I, her and a couple other – like Tlaib, Tlaib, Tlaib. Rashida Tlaib. Rashida Tlaib and Ilana Omar. Um, uh, they're getting a lot of attention too and I think conservatives could spend a little more time looking at some of the things that they're saying. Um, but – there is this catch-22 is where she gets elevated as this rising star, this sort of, you know, this uh, voice of a new generation and heralded and praised for it. And then conservatives who take her seriously are all of a sudden condemned for taking her se- – why are you making such a big deal about this freshman congressman? And there's a – and the thing is conservatives keep falling for the trap. But I'm not sure there's any way to avoid falling for the trap to a certain extent – because if you're going to get glowing coverage on – if you're going to get a 60 Minutes interview um, talking about you know getting rid of all fossil fuels in the next 12 years, conservatives have to pay some attention to that, right? I mean they have to criticize. Sure. And, but I think that's – that is different than – well, and I, I also think there's some of this that is like uh, – there's, there's backlash to non-existent backlash. Like this goes like eight eight layers of the Inception dream. Yeah. I remember there was a story recently where they unearthed some video of her in college dancing. dancing yeah. And it was not offensive. I did not see a single actual conservative who was offended or in any way really cared about this. 
But then the conservatives pounce stories began. Um, And like I would watch some, you know, a friend of mine from college, you know, posted one of these videos. Look at these conservatives going after AOC for her dancing. And the video has like tweets that show, oh, look at these conservative pouncing. And like the accounts are at anonymous 81. Like, I mean, it's bots. It's bots. It's like that. That's that's what's happening here. But it, it feeds the cycle. And to your point about picking the lock, she can get away with things that would you could not normally get away with because folks on her side, even if they would criticize you normally for, oh, you got facts wrong. Well, but now the conservatives are criticizing. Now her. it's a loyalty thing. So now it's a loyalty thing. Yeah. I mean, that's 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 the real dilemma. I am. I'm not making the accusation, but I am very let me put it this way. I would not be shocked if that dancing video wasn't leaked by her. It would be a genius move. Yeah. I mean, because she's very good at trolling and again and inviting the counter backlash that makes her more popular. And, uh, um, you know, it's sort of like, you know, the White House, there was that story a year ago about how there are people in the White House who, when they're handling Trump's Twitter feed, deliberately put typos in it because they think. It's a sign of his anti-elitism and when the elites make fun of his typos, real Americans see that as the establishment circling. You know, And it's all wheels within wheels BS to a certain extent. But I think it works on social media in, in all sorts of interesting ways. The only good thing on social media are pictures of our dogs. Let's, that's exactly let's right. Clear. Yeah. No, that's exactly it's the right. the only reason I still go to the internet. <laughs> and I will say this. Like, so on the dog tweeting thing, um, I get – I do get legitimate criticism from people about tweeting the dogs and it's amazing when I go around the country how many people come up to me and they say, if you stop tweeting pictures of those dogs, I'll kill you. <laughs> you <know? laughs> and But they're, they're – but every now and then I'll highlight someone's criticism about tweeting the dogs and I will admit it's partly a social media strategy because it enrages so many Same. more people <laughs> to like, how dare, how dare you tell Goldberg to stop tweeting Pippa, Pippa's ah, or whatever it is, you know. And but it's true; it's one of the la- it really is one of the last things on Twitter that just makes you feel good about things. In part because it's completely or almost completely immune to politics, um, and because politics are just awful now. All right, so we're going to wrap up, but I do want to ask you because uh, I've been talking about this for a while with some other people about the parties. You know, part of my obsession these days is that we live in one of the most partisan moments in American history, but the parties themselves have never been weaker. And that is both a cause of and a result of this polarization stuff, right? Is there any way that concrete way to turn that around? I mean, there, I mean, some of the guys in the Scannon Center, I think have some good ideas about making a law. You just have to reveal your tax returns, no longer make it a custom you know, but what are the things that can revive the parties as viable institutions in American life, or are they just because right now they're they're basically just weak brand names more than anything else, right? Well, this is I think one of the things that is so misunderstood about politics these days is the intersection of money in politics, the way money influences politics. So take, for instance, you know, discussions about the NRA and how, oh, the NRA cut a check to a member of Congress. Therefore, they own that member of Congress. The reason why that member of Congress votes in favor of Second Amendment protections is because they, A, personally believe it, and that's why the NRA supports them. The causality arrow goes the other direction. 
Or two, it's because in that member's district, there are X thousand NRA members. It's not, you know, the focus gets turned into the money rather than. So what has happened. And the NRA performs a party function that the party's not doing anymore about mobilizing voters. And and legally can't do anymore. Uh, So so or legally parties back in, you know, pre-BICRA, bipartisan campaign reform. I know the BCRA has now like that became an acronym for something else. Yeah, no, that's right. Um, it was like one of the healthcare bills. Yeah, yeah, yeah. CRA. The original BICRA was campaign finance reform, and it was one of those extremely well-intentioned bills. We're going to get money out of politics. But instead, the money left the parties and just went other places where right. it is even less accountable to people, where it is less tethered to um, here is a candidate who I can hold accountable for this ad that I think is you know, improper or that now you have in a way – the, the good intentions of getting money out of the system have now pushed that money to other places. And I think until you change that, I mean, oddly, and I'm not saying I support this, but I think if you allowed unlimited but fully disclosed campaign contribution, hard money to the parties, to the parties, yeah. you would you would see the parties become renewed as institutions again instead of being weak and sort of yeah. – a, it, that that would be a byproduct. Not saying I support it, but just that that is a one outcome you would get. And interestingly, I was talking to a friend a few weeks ago who had run in a Republican primary and had lost to an extremely well-funded or ex, uh, extremely wealthy self-funded candidate. And she said, look, one of the reasons why I could never compete is there were limits on the amount of money that I could ever bring into my own campaign. Right. And there was no limit for him. Like weirdly, these caps on hard money donations – have made it more possible for people who are extremely wealthy individuals to have this loophole yeah. that lets them run. So there are all sorts of, of side effects that you get out of well-intentioned campaign finance policy that have weakened the parties, have made it more possible for self-funders to destroy the candidacies of, yeah. of you know, your average middle-class American who wants to run because you cannot be a talented middle-class individual and go seek funding from a a, a backer who right. would support you so that you could compete with a Howard Schultz in your congressional district. <laughs> yeah, no, uh, I mean, and Cocaine Mitch predicted all of this when on the Senate floor in, what, 98, 99. He just said, look, we're not moving money out of politics. We're moving money out of the parties. And, and so now we have all these institutions that are not accountable, that are single-issue institutions that get you into all sorts of problems with the sort of uh, uh, concentrated benefits, diffuse cost issues that you get with special interests. And and I would ra- – I agree with you. I want to hear more about the proposal. But I, I, I kind of like the idea of having unlimited hard money donations to the parties. Make it full dis- you know, disclosure and all the rest. Make it transparent. But because as it stands – the way you become powerful in the party is being popular, period, right? There's no other consideration. And the parties at least used to have a long-term institutional interest in protecting their brand beyond the next election cycle. That's gone. That's 100% gone. And that's why the young voter question continues to elude Republicans. Yeah. Because as long as they're not important in – they're not perceived as being important in the election that's happening 24 months from now, it doesn't matter that they're going to be important to what the party looks like 24 years from now or right. four years from now, that the, the incentives are very, very, very short term. Yeah. And that has led us to the politics we have today. And that's the same issue with minorities, ethnic minorities with the Republican Party is that they're always just thinking about 
what's going to help our our candidate this cycle, not about what's going to like expand the party after all the old people die. But uh, Kristen's nodding. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> all right, well, Kristen, thank you very much for coming on. Um, we would love to uh, have had Wally here, but we're going to save that for when we have video capability and maybe do a YouTube show. Um, and thanks again. Thanks for having me. Okay, so uh, Kristen has left the building, and we're still working on a better leave the building sound effect, right? You're you're struggling with this, or did no? I, I for the last episode, I chose the door slam noise from "Don't Bring Me Down" by ELO, as everyone knows, my favorite band now. Uh-huh. Um, but someone on on Twitter suggested the uh, whoosh noise from Star Trek with the door that from um, from Mission Control. What is it called? The command, the bridge. Bridge, yeah, or basically all the doors on the ship. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, that would be a good one too. There, um, there's also the sound effect where they had the um, secret death ray that made people go and uh, disappear in the parallel universe one in Mirror Mirror, um, or which was very similar to basically the only sound effect that existed on Lost, the original <laughs> Lost in Space. Uh-huh. Uh, but I, I leave it to you. Um, so, uh, what'd you think of all that? Well, my thoughts are complicated, but we don't have much time here. No, that's true. I got to get to New York. I like Kristen. She's just – she's a – not to go all Fargo. She's a super lady. <laughs> um, and uh, um, Turkey's a long way to go for a seven-year-old golden retriever, but it sounds like God found the right place for Wally to be. Yeah, my, here, here, here are the only thoughts I'll submit. Uh, I think last year or maybe the year before, there was a viral video of a concert – an orchestral concert in Turkey at the ruin at some ancient ruins, and during the concert, a I don't think it was a golden retriever. I think it was like a yellow lab just wandered in and started just calmly like <laughs> sniffing around, and then it just sat down next to one of the violinists, t- took a big that. yawn, and yeah. then just like chilled yeah. for the rest of the concert. So now, <laughs> now that makes a lot more sense that there'd just be all these nice dogs wandering around. Yeah, and it makes me want to um get, you know, a baseball bat and do extreme violence to people who buy puppies and then just throw them out into the streets when they're no longer cute or 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 cuddly. I mean, that's just that's a very bad thing to do. I'll just be as delicate about Jonah it. Jonah Wick coming this summer. Um uh so anyway, I, you know, I think she's probably right about the primary thing. I think, you know, people like Bill Crystal are a little too rosy scenario about it. But and Jonathan last, but at the same time, I do think you get a cascade. You, it's very possible to get a cascade effect where the more people who get in, the lower the, pri- the lower the price to entry for getting in. I also just think, you know, I make this point in my LA Times column today, which will be on NRO tomorrow. You know, there are all these people who are making this argument that you know Donald Trump has met his match by Nancy Pelosi, and that Nancy Pelosi is this unbelievably formidable political player and the reality is yeah she's 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 not a terrible politician she's actually a pretty good politician she's not a, a she's not a great uh articulator or spokesperson for her cause but she's she understands she's sort of like mitch mcconnell who's not a great articulator or spokesperson for the cause but he understands the powers of the institution and at his disposal what trump hasn't really processed is that it's not so much that she's so formidable it's that his superpower for the last two years has been that if he criticized a fellow Republican, it could destroy that fellow Republican because he could remove a significant amount of his support in the primaries or in the general. And because Trump commanded the support of most of the rank and file voters, 
on the right and people were more loyal to him than they were to like Mitt Romney, which was sort of like what Kristen was saying earlier about Mitt Romney's approval ratings. That is just not the dynamic anymore. Trump can attack Nancy Pelosi all he likes. It's just going to make her more popular. It's going to solidify the support from her base for all the reasons we were getting at about, you know, negative partisanship. And he doesn't know, how, you know, he worked against Hillary Clinton to the extent that he won and she lost. But Hillary Clinton was a different entity in a different position with no institutional power. And he was trying to win over the marginal swing voter in a handful of states, which he managed to do, even though he lost the popular vote. Him attacking Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer doesn't hurt those guys. It helps those guys. He can't move voters against them. And they, meanwhile, I mean, certainly in the House, can do all sorts of stuff that hurts him. It's just starting with subpoenaing people. And so I think the next two years are going to be so much uglier for Trump than the previous two years. And Trump is basically starting his presidency over in a certain sense because he doesn't know – he has no experience dealing with the situation that he's about to face. And um, it's going to – and as a result, one of the things we're seeing is a lot of the MAGA types are all of a sudden much, much, much more concerned about the perfidy and treachery of the – you know, the, the, the November criminals – of people like, you know, allegedly me and, and Bill Crystal because they got to find someone to blame. Um, and it's not going to be, you know, Donald Trump. And I, that's one of the fascinating things about these books that are coming out. This, what's the guy's name? Cliff Sims. Mm, yeah, I think so. And, um, and Christie's book, it's this, it's this new tack where these guys are attacking the people around Trump. Right. The one concession they will make to criticizing Trump is that he doesn't hire the best people. Instead, it's a bunch of vipers around Trump, but not Trump himself, which is an interesting new spin on things. Um, and clearly something that someone says when they want to get when they want to stay on the good side of of MAGA nation and at the same time stay on the good side of Donald Trump himself. Anyway, um, there's a new glop out that you guys might want to listen to it was pretty good yeah i listened to it What'd i uh, i liked it i i john Podoritz is like retreating from every uh i can't there are fewer and fewer places to get his opinion he's <laughs> he's, he's not on he doesn't review movies for the weekly stand anymore he's not on twitter uh i guess he's still at the new york post in commentary but yeah he's running scared i know it's, <laughs> i don't get it i mean I'm, now i don't know what he thinks of movies anymore except on glop yeah that's right have you seen glass no do you have any desire to see glass uh, not not particularly. Did you see the first two? No, I think right, I then there's no. Re- if you haven't seen the first two, there's no reason to see Glass. But all right, so we won't talk about that. But I got to go to the airport. We are like we are on the home stretch for three thousand reviews on iTunes. Uh, so please, if you can, uh, review us there. We're not sure if there's going to be a second show this week, and if there is, what it's going to be. But we'll you know stay tuned. Um, please keep the nice comments on Twitter coming. I retweet a lot of them. The Remnant account retweets a lot of them if you care about that kind of thing. But, you know, uh, word of mouth and viral marketing in some ways is more is the most important way of moving this thing out there. And, um, you know, I can't let all of these, you know, niche podcasts like Crabs in the Bucket pull me back down. So if you can help out, I really appreciate it. And um, thank you very much for listening. And uh, and I'll see you next time. Thank you all this
you're yeah. still recording, I assume? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Jack's pissed. Uh... <laughs> you have no idea how I ever feel. You're just guessing. <laughs> My poker face is incredible. Yeah, that was a non-denial denial.